Beth Steinberg and Miriam Avraham both have children with Down syndrome. Both moved to Israel and both found there virtually no informal education programming for those with developmental challenges. So they started a program themselves. Shutaf, which means partner in Hebrew, is a Jerusalem-based organization and a Good People Fund grantee that practices an inclusionary model of informal programming mixing kids, teens, and young adults across the spectrum of developmental, physical, and learning abilities. Beginning with a summer camp attracting 10 participants in 2007, Shutaf now offers year-round programming for more than 300. In the process, Shutaf is elevating the critical nature of its model in Israel, the United States, and beyond. In this episode of Good People Talk, Beth and Miriam speak with GPF co-founder and executive director, Naomi Eisenberger. Beth and Miriam have very, very personal stories that are tied into the work that they are doing at Shutaf. I'm going to leave it to the two of you. Okay, so I've been living in Israel for 42 years. I have a daughter with Down syndrome who today is 26 years old. And in 2006, Beth made Aliyah and she has a son who is 24 today, also with Down syndrome. I had been struggling for years in Israel with um, what to do with my daughter Vinny in the during vacation time, school vacations and in the afternoons. As she got older, it was uh, more complicated to find um, activities for her to do in downtime. And so when Beth came, she asked me, you know, what do I do? And I said, well, I don't really have an answer for you because there isn't anything. There really was nothing. There was nothing for summertime. There were no camps. There were no after school activities. There was nothing going on. And quite honestly, that hasn't changed in any real way since in the last 15 years. So a little we, bit more um, development on informal education, but for kids with disabilities, vacation nothing. times are really tough. Yeah. So we um, decided to do something about it. Um, I had a bunch of families, parents, moms that I had, I was in touch with, and I knew we're also looking for these things. And so we started, we started with 10 children for a summer camp of two weeks. Kids were really diverse in their needs, in their in who they were, where they came from. And we had seven children with a diagnosis, with some kind of disability, and we had three children without. And we grew from there. We, um, we saw that it was successful. The kids were happy. We knew that we were onto something pretty, pretty quickly. And I was just so happy because I thought, this is what I wanted. It just proved to me that when you when you know what you want, you just have to do it yourself because <laughs> nobody's going to do it better. But you know, so, Mir, the other, Mir, I just want to add in one thought. I'm just thinking about how you and I both also know about camp. You know, we both grew up at camp. So the notion that informal education matters, that summers should be a time of growth for a kid and not sitting at home. Like it was obvious to us also that there was this place for like really growing informal education here, along with this idea that it should be inclusive, that it should include our own children, let alone other kids. That was also to me a very powerful thing. And my kid didn't, you know, just because I came from America in 2006, it's not like Akiva had anything. Most people turned him down to all programs. I hadn't really found what to do with him during vacations and he was missing out and that didn't seem fair. 
So we knew we were onto something, and you know, I said, "Well, the next the next school holiday is Hanukkah. Let's do a Hanukkah camp." So we did a Hanukkah camp with twenty kids, and then the next huge vacation of twenty one days that we were just talking about today in the office is Passover Pesach. So we said, "Okay, let's do camp again at Pesach time." So that was forty children, and we already at that camp had a junior counselor program with your son Beth. <laughs> Oh, that's and true. His friends. <laughs> and some other young people with disabilities, too. We were already saying right. to ourselves, what does a teen or a young adult do during vacation? Turns out not much. So it was, you know, the birth of these various bits of programs and sort of seeing them through the eyes of camp at that point until the fa- until the summer. Right. Where we found yeah. ourselves really over our heads with like totally. 50 kids for three weeks. What an adventure and what a realization to have grown that much in one year, to have known there was that much need. And to understand that we needed some professional um, (laughs) people working in the program to direct the program. Well, you know why? Because we couldn't, both me and Miriam, we realized we didn't want to be camp directors. You know, you all dream about being a camp director, but we didn't really want to be a camp director. Plus, we had realized we actually had a fundraise for this thing. Like, and it was another element of how could we grow this if we didn't ask for help and tell people what we were doing. It never dawned on me until now, listening to you, that neither of you really trained in this field. You know, totally you may have not. been camp kids, but there's a, there's a giant leap between being a camp kid and running a camp, particularly for kids with disabilities. Talk about chutzpah. I have long felt that there's a book out there about making Aliyah and innovation. What does it mean to like leave everything behind, recreate yourself in a new place, and then discover new things about yourself? And I think that's why a lot of times you do hear about interesting stories of Olim and stuff they do. I think if I looked at our programs in Israel, I would probably find a high percentage of them have been started by Olim. Many of them are programs such as yours where there was a need that they had themselves and just decided, okay, I'm just going to do this because nobody else is going to do it and it doesn't exist. It wasn't even just that, I think. You're right. I do believe the personal need story, but I almost think to myself, I mean, I think Miriam and I were so like uh, naive, like Mm -hmm. a year went by and we were sort of like, so what about insurance? Do we have insurance? Like there were things... You know, there were things that we didn't know. And also that's an Israeli thing. Israelis are like, you want to start a camp? Here, start a camp right here. There's a room here. Use this room. Right. You know, and so we really learned by doing that was a really worthy education. Nobody who would have who would have hired us to do this work, who would have hired us to be the development of some young organization, who would have hired us to do any of the things we've done. And the other thing that we realized very quickly was that working together because it was two of us. Yeah. And not all on our lonesome was critical. It was critical to getting started. And I'd say it was critical for the long haul in a big way because we we call ourselves, you know, our other our other spouse. Right. And we've been through thick and thin and we've really supported each other as we went through this tremendous learning process, you know. It isn't just Camp Shootop. It's the work that has come and the accomplishments that have come. And in your ability to sort of change the conversation, not only in Israel, but elsewhere, it's not just the shoot-off program. There's something else much, much bigger. 
the thing I was thinking about as you were saying that before I before even discussing what some of that is about is a million years ago, like literally one of the first trips we ever made, I made to New York. I remember I was sitting with someone who said, I was like chatting about like shoe tough and what it means. And like, it was only the camp at that point and like the program and the language we're trying to use and the work we're trying to do and the, you know, the innovation and inclusion. And she said, so you're trying to start a revolution? I was like, a, a, a revolution? Like, I don't know. But you know, all these years later- it was. Yeah, I actually think even more than that. And this is something that I really honor very deeply. And I think it is the reason why we are together all these years later, me and Mir. We are ambitious. I'm not ashamed to say that. And I think that shoot tough happened for us both at a good moment in our lives. You know, your kids aren't babies anymore. You can think maybe a little bit more clearly. That idea that we were like really onto something that both fed us as well as the importance of the program and the importance of the work, or when I started to kind of teach and talk about it abroad, which then led us to what you were talking about. And I think there's two sides of that, the growth of the organization from just the camps to our young leadership program for teens, our program for 21 plus serving this growing population. And then the education work, which happened because people would say to me, so maybe come and like teach about this. And I would think like, I'm not an educator, but I knew that I knew the language. I knew I knew the words. I knew that, you know, there was a story to tell and certainly a world to change. And, you know, if we speak about it just from a Jewish communal kind of a thing, a Jewish community, a Jewish community that needed a deeper conversation about what it means to be a member of the tribe and have a diverse need and that it was time to be included into that community. I'm not, we have not solved that problem. The larger issues that still um, face people with disabilities in the Jewish community and beyond is still something. Let's talk about that reverse inclusion model, which is what you have developed and is what really drives the engine here. What is it? Well, you know, most programs, most ideas about inclusion are that are based on what the world is about, meaning 15% of the world's population has some kind of disability that's about a billion people. But that's essentially a minority group compared to the rest of the world. In most places, when they speak about an inclusion program, it's a group of ordinary participants, participants of ordinary needs, I will call them, that would be neurotypical in the more clinical speak, to which you bring in a smaller subgroup, a minority group of people with disabilities, participants with disabilities. So first of all, that means they're always the minority group, problem one. You know, you're not really ever building the program just for them. You know, the whole notion about Shoe Tough was to build a program that served the needs of children, teens, and young adults with disabilities first, and to make room for kids, for participants without disabilities. So that's a reverse inclusion model. But I would say that, Naomi, another really important point is mixing disabilities in the world. The world of disability is disabilities is highly siloed and divided. So it's like, oh, you've got that need, you go there. You've got that need, you go there. Imagine in a program like ours where we don't, we are not diagnosis focused. It's more, how can I meet your needs? So we could say to somebody, oh, those are your needs. Great. You're welcome here at Shoe Tough alongside a person who has no no actual diagnosis. So the reverse inclusion model, yes, I think it's very different. And I don't think you'll, I mean, we've never found anyone else doing it, but there may be somebody doing it. But I think the larger issue is 
What does that create within the program and within the staff who come to work at the program and the experience of everybody there? That brings us to the second point about how we manage to do it successfully is because of our staff training and support that we, that we provide. The staff training and the ongoing mentorship allow us to have such diversity you know, amongst our participants in one group. You can have so much difference. And yet, you know, what we're looking at is what, first of all, what is you know, communal, what is, what is shared by everyone? And then how do you meet the needs of the kids who, you know, a child who can't sit in an activity or a person who doesn't do well in a social environment? How do you really address those needs? And that really comes down to the staff and how you're training your staff, how you're supporting your staff, what you're telling them in terms of the actual things, you know, the actual skills that you need in order to respond in the moment, as well as how are you thinking about this? How, what's your mindset when you, when you come into, you know, work with the group? Those concepts are the concepts that we wanted to share and, you know, is what the work that we're doing with, um, with the educational work is how do you train your staff? We see it as key to a successful program. For years, I heard about the inclusion guide, and now I know that it is, it is reality. It's not just about putting out resources. We made the decision that they should be open source. Anyone can right. use them. The, the idea that these ideas aren't just ours. They are so many people who work in the field and believe deeply in this kind of work. And it was Miriam who, you know, Miriam who kept saying, this is a legacy that we can leave. And I, I don't know, legacy was a weird word for me to, th- it's still a hard word for me to maybe think about. I don't know, Miriam, talk about the guide. I'm going to be quiet. Well, at first we thought, okay, it'll be a book. And we realized, well, that nobody reads and that's going to go straight into the trash can. And we decided to, first of all, it would only be online, obviously not in a book form at all, and that it would be um, short clips and very short you know, tips and materials, resource materials that anyone working in the field could use to train their staff, to think about inclusion if they had thoughts, if they were a, just a staff member, if they were you know, a youth group staffer, if they were someone in, I don't know, the Ministry of Education, anyone could look at this material and say, oh, that's an interesting idea. That's a great video. I can use that to show to my colleagues. I can use it to show to my trainees, whatever. I can use this material in the work that I do in, you know, working with diverse groups. So that was, that was the thought. That was kind of the, the idea behind it. And we had no idea what we were getting involved in. It's a huge, huge, huge project. Initially, we thought we would do it in English and in Hebrew. And then a funder said to us, well, why not in Arabic? We're here in Israel. The material should be in Arabic as well. And we're like, oh, of course it should be in Arabic as well. So it's, it's a big project. And it, uh, there's a tremendous amount of information. And Beth keeps adding more ideas to it. In addition to what Miriam said, that we've put additional resources on. You know, we we just filmed six new videos. There are new activities and kind of training tools. There's the reels, the short clips that we've put on. There's a tremendous amount of content. And by the way, it's never done. That's a big question. No, that's the good part of it, though. Well, it's it's the good. Yeah. Right now, we've sort of reached a moment where we've said, okay, we've got 
good work going on. We've got a nice amount of content on the website at the moment. We've made good connections in North America. We're hopefully getting a little further this year on showing users how to make use of the guide. But the mm -hmm. real big challenge ahead of us is doing that here in Israel. On a certain level, doing it like to abroad was almost easier during this COVID period because North American camps, they do a lot of training. They kind of understand that this lingo and these resources could be helpful to them. Plus you had already developed a lot of relationships with Jewish yes. educators in the United States already. Yeah, so there was like the easy first step, but doing it here is critical and it's so needed, let alone getting to the Arab community as well as in the Israeli community. So this is, this is our big challenge in the coming year. I want to hear a story about a camper of this program. The camper story I want to tell is the camper story that I believe to this day we continue to talk about and chew on. And we even made a video about it because of its importance in terms of understanding our worldview. And that is the, uh, um, the, video, the, the video, we called the video Sam's story, um, but it, told, it talked about a camper who arrived at camp once, uh, actually it was a Pesach camp. And he looked at Marcy and he said, listen, I always get thrown out. So why don't you just throw me hey, out right Marcy, now? Marcy, our program director. Right. I apologize, Marcy, our program director. And Marcy was like, well, challenge accepted. Like, I'm not gonna throw you out. So let's have a good time this week. And this was a child who basically proceeded to run away regularly, daily, it was a thing. And he really ran. And we were, uh, Pesach camp at the time was in a slightly more urban setting. So his running meant, you know, he ended up on the, you know, on sort of the street with shops and, or he ended up further out into the other neighborhood. And Marcy, program director, looked at her assistant director at the time, Yoni, and she said, listen, he's yours, run after him. <laughs> and I would say the first thing I think she wanted this kid to know we have your back. You want to run? We'll follow. So each day he would run and Yoni would follow. <laughs> and there was the day that he really ran quite far and Yoni called Marcy and said, so what do I do? And Marcy said, take him out for pizza. Find yeah. out what's going on. What's he thinking about? Why does he feel so in the need to run? And so they went out for pizza and whatever. But the point was that Yoni built trust with this kid. This kid began to see we weren't going to throw him out. We didn't make him go to any activities. He didn't want to at that point. We were just going to show him that he had the room to do what he needed to do, and we would follow. He wouldn't get lost. He would stay safe. We were just talking about safety today at the program, and what does it mean to really create a sense of safety for each other? And, you know, by the last day, as the story continues to be told, you know, Yoni, he's about to run, and Yoni is eating his, you know, eating a sandwich. I guess it was, you know, Aruchat Eser, the sacrosanct 10 o'clock snack in the morning. And the kid went by and he said, listen, I'm ready to run. And Yoni said, no problem, but I got to just finish my sandwich. Give me a second. <laughs> and then they ran together. Mm, it's beautiful. And the best part about, I also love another part of the story is the following summer, he came back to camp and he joined the activities and he had a really good time. And Marcy called the parent and said, wow, we're having such a good time. How's school been the last few months? And she said, terrible. But at Shutaf, he really feels secure. And that mm -hmm. was such a like amazing story. And sadly, the family moved away and we didn't continue our relationship with this kid. I'd like to think that that moment though maybe had an impact on his parents recognizing that there were places that perhaps could accept their kids' behavior and maybe work with it and help work through it. And also that the kid could also realize 
that not everyone wants to throw you out, that sometimes people can really accept you for who you are. And I think those, that idea to be accepted for who you are is very deep in the, the DNA of what we believe in at the program, that you know, everyone has a right to be here and that you know, your needs are not more important than another person's needs, your diagnosis is not more important than another person's diagnosis, and that if we can respond to your needs and help you have a good time, that that's so it makes the world go around and makes the world a better place and a more inclusive place. We always like to leave our listeners with some ideas as far as how can they become advocates for inclusion in their own communities. There are two stories I often like to tell. I, I was thinking about how a couple of years ago I was sitting in shul and I was reminded that when a kid, you know, let's say you hear noise in the sanctuary, what do you tend to do? You look. Look. That's what people do, right? We look. I remember I thought to myself, I'm going to stop looking. Nobody needs me to look. If it's a parent holding a little kid, they're already like, oh, could you shut up? You know, like, right. <laughs> oh, do I have to take you out of shul or am I okay bouncing you for another minute? You know, if it's an older person, I certainly sat in shul with my mother in her later years where she spoke very loudly in shul. Loudly. My, mother, my mother, the Rebbitson. And I thought, okay, she speaks loudly. But if I don't turn and look, I don't make anyone feel uncomfortable. And that was even one small, one small step for me on thinking inclusively in my community. It's those kinds of things that can help us really realize that we felt uncomfortable before, maybe with that noise. Now we feel less uncomfortable. So it's that kind of stuff. It's like reminding yourself that you can help move this forward, but you must push yourself. You must push yourself to recognize that maybe you've been less accepting, less understanding in the past, but that acceptance and understanding is still there in your future. Yeah, I obviously I, I completely agree. I think that it's about the change from within each of us. How do we listen better? How do we pay attention? How do we not judge? You know, and how do we recognize the absolute 100% human right of every single one of us to be there, to be present, to be part of the community, no matter what that community looks like, and that the community is strengthened. You know, I mean, we say it and it sounds, you know, cliche that the community is strengthened by the diversity within it, but it's really true. And when you really open your heart to it, you really get it. You really understand how much everyone is better for, for welcoming people of difference into their lives and into their communities. Push hard to recognize, as Miriam said, that everyone's got a right at the table. The fact that we're talking about it is very significant. I want to thank you both for being such good friends to, to me personally and to the Good People Fund. And we, of course, want to thank you, Naomi, and the Good People Fund for your friendship and your support over the years and your wise words and your availability and... Um, Her mentorship. Your mentorship, your ongoing mentorship and friendship. Thank you so much. I thank you for your, your good work and your good words.